Software is broken, but it can be fixed. Test Double's superpower is improving how the world builds software by building both great software and great teams. And you can help. Test Double is hiring empathetic senior software engineers and DevOps engineers based in the United States and Canada. They work in Ruby, JavaScript, Elixir, and a lot more. Testable trusts developers with autonomy in a supportive and 100% remote environment. Their employee-owned software consulting agency is an experience accelerator where developer consultants enjoy lots of variety while working with the best teams in tech. Find out more at link.testdouble.com slash greater. That's link.testdouble.com slash greater. Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 274. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with May Beal. Also here with us is our show creator, Mandy Moore. Thanks, May. I'm Mandy, and today I'm here with our guest, Arpit Mohan. From unscrewing his childhood Tamagotchi to taking apart a computer, Arpit has always tinkered with technology. But while working on a mobile game that went viral seemingly overnight, our pit realized he was on to something big, a way to put customizable app tools directly into developers' hands. So he and two co-founders created AppSmith, an open-source project built by engineers for engineers. With AppSmith, our pit can do what he loves most, using technology to help people accomplish more. Welcome to the show, our pit. Thank you so much for having me. Super glad. We like to kick off the show by asking all of our guests, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? One of my superpowers is I am tenacious. I am really, really tenacious. You give me a problem to work on. You give me something, especially a measurable problem to work on, and I will ensure that it'll get done. I'll keep thinking about it. I'll keep chipping away at it. At some point of time, it will get done. Maybe because I'm a little competitive by nature. And to me, it seems that most problems or most things are accomplishable. If you just kind of stick with the problem, you continue to work on it. Uh, And that's what uh, I've done right from childhood. So, yeah, I think that's one of the things that I've always excelled at. You say that that you've always had that from childhood. When did you realize that that was the thing that that you were doing that was different from maybe how other people approach problems? Well, once I graduated from university, from my undergrad, that's when, you know, I started up uh, our first company back in 2010. And uh, while every startup founder hopes and wishes that, you know, you only have to ever start up once in your life. Uh, and you know that's the one startup that becomes a, a unicorn, a billion-dollar company, gives you the exit, uh, so you can retire on a beach. Unfortunately, that did not pan out for us. While the first startup was a mild success, lukewarm su- success, I would call it at best. Me and my other co-founder, we kind of kept at it for about twelve years now. And uh, so, AppSmith is actually officially the third company that we're working on and maybe I think the 30th or 40th product. I've just lost count of the number of products that we've built, we've launched, uh, we've uh, failed at miserably for a large part of them. 
uh, and seen a lot of you know success with some of them, uh, like the mobile game in the past. So a lot of uh, startup founders, you know, tend to start up once or twice and then you know give up and maybe move on to a corporate job. Uh, but that's when I realized that if you keep at uh, something, if you keep continue to do something, you start to manufacture luck. And at some point, lady luck does, you know, smile at you. So I think just the startup journey is when I realized that tenacity is something that a lot of people lack. I love it. Arpa, I keep, are you familiar with Tenacious D? Yeah, absolutely. Tenacious D, a, a, a fantastic movie. Love the music. Uh, especially the at the end where he kind of sings with the devil. Uh, I think uh, it's a really, really good song. <laughs> although, although I wouldn't probably tattoo it on myself, but but yeah, I love the love the movie and the actor Jack Black, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kept wanting to um, call you Tenacious A, so that's that's your name for me now. Absolutely. So, Arpit, we invited you on the show today because you wanted to talk about managing people versus servers. And I'm interested in this topic because I want to figure out, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so as engineers, uh, you know, uh, there's always a lot of uh, mind space and thought that goes into how we, you know, write or manage our code, manage our infrastructure and manage our servers. But... Managing servers is actually the easy part of the job because if a server does not work or it's not to your liking, you can always reboot the server. You can get a different server and it just, you know, with AWS or Azure or any other cloud, it's, it, it happens, you know, with the click of a button. Unfortunately or fortunately, people are much trickier. You know, you can't just reboot a person. And uh, that's what actually makes, uh, you know, managing people, working with people, leading people, a much more interesting experience. And it also is a lot of learning that happens with everybody that you work with because the same person sort of evolves over time, right? So even if, you know, I'm working with you, Mandy, over here, we might be working together for five years, but the Mandy of five years ago is a very different person from what, you know, she is today. An Ubuntu system, you know, 1604, uh, you keep it on for the next 30 years, that is exactly what you will have. So the amount of learning that you have when you're managing a server is constant or it plateaus after a while. But the interesting part about people is that there's always something new to learn about, you know, your colleague, your partner, or, you know, just humans in general. And that's what I find uh, very, very interesting about the difference between servers and people and why they might be two slightly different sides of the coin. But I think there is a lot to be learned or a lot to be sort of derived from engineering principles when we deal with people. For example, uh, there's a lot of literature around how to manage a distributed system. A distributed system is nothing but a cluster of servers or a lot of servers that form a cohesive unit and operate as one. So when you do a google.com search, you're actually hitting like some large cluster of servers hosted by Google, but is presented to you as a single Google search. So all these servers are operating as a cohesive unit. So we can derive a lot of learnings from how a company or our engineers manage these large clusters of servers and how we can cohesively manage a large group of people to act as one towards a common goal, towards a common outcome. And that is something that I find very fascinating. I agree completely. I love and am fascinated by people. And I would add to your list of always new things to learn is also about oneself. Like, 
we too are changing and or most people don't have a good lock on exactly who they are or what they're doing. So yeah, a lot of um, constantly changing variables is a super fun place to be. Have you, Arpit, taken this analogy any steps further of like, and so there's this system upgrade that we apply or I don't know, have you explored any like deeper into this analogy? Yeah, absolutely. This is something I've uh, thought about a lot and uh, something that I try to practice in uh, our day-to-day job. So AppSmith is an open source project. So we deal with a lot of people, a lot of contributors and a lot of community users as well on a daily basis. And uh, we are globally distributed across, uh, uh, across the planet. So a lot of uh, learnings that I've had as a distributed systems engineer, I've tried to apply it to AppSmith, the project, and to the work that uh, we do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, One of the uh, examples, uh, immediate examples, is that uh, whenever you have a distributed uh, system, a very important aspect of it is having a consistent language or an interface where two microservices can talk to each other. So if I have a service, a microservice A and a microservice B, For them to communicate with each other, there is a predefined interface that is well-defined. And this applies to people as well, that, you know, whenever you are interacting with multiple other folks in the team, if you don't have a shared language, you don't have a shared understanding of the topic at hand, the problem at hand, that's when things start to go awry. So one of the first things to actually do whenever you start working with anybody for that matter is establish a level, a consistent language and a consistent interface so that both the parties are always on the same page. They're always, you know, if I say X, you understand exactly what I mean. And it's not like you have a different version of X in your head as compared to what I have. And a lot of times the illusion of communication is, for humans especially, the illusion of communication is that it has happened. And that's what I do, you know, whenever a new contributor or a new person joins the team, that's the first thing that we kind of sit and do is, oh, what's our terminology? What's the level of understanding that we have with each other? And we just spent the first few days or weeks just establishing that shared level of understanding with with anybody new uh, in the team. It begins with something as basic as having a consistent language. So that's one of the the principles. I suspected that you were going to have some more detail on that. (laughs) I'm so glad I asked. And honestly, I would love to hear the outline of how to translate distributed server management to very human-focused, human-serving management practices. It's super cool. Yeah, actually, before we dive into that, actually, there's one sort of follow-up I'd love to get before we jump off is, do you have any like techniques or or things that you do on on a basis to to sort of verify that everyone's gotten onto that same page, that that the two either individuals or or teams or groups or whatever, like have gotten to that point or have maintained that that sync on, on their understanding of the of what they're working on? Yeah, actually, there are a few tactical things or signals that you sort of pick up on. The first is going back to the basis of all human knowledge, which is the written word. At the end of a particular discussion or a meeting that you have with somebody, if you share the meeting notes or minutes of the meeting with the other person, immediately the words that are used in the minutes are typically a translation of what the writer has understood or what the writer is taking away. If there are differences or discrepancies in the keywords that are being used, for example, let's say we are talking about an authentication system. 
in an authentication system a user role or a user policy in different systems might be interchangeably used they might mean the same thing or different things to you or me or whatever but inherently if wherever we are talking about roles like in google drive you have an editor role and a commenter role and a viewer so versus a policy like a commenter policy or a viewer policy so immediately if you know the writer is using the words policy then you know that oh you know the keywords that are being used are not the same that means we are not yet on the same page that means the writer is probably thinking of something else they may or may not be on the same page we don't know yet so so you kind of have to kind of dig deeper and be like oh you know why did you use the word policy what what did you actually understand when we talked about roles when we were talking about so that's like the written word is the first sort of thing that i would probably look out for mm. the other one is uh, sort of following up where you constantly have again it goes back a little bit with distributed systems so a tcp handshake uh, the http protocol that we have a tcp handshake it's literally a handshake so it's there's a sin and then there's an ack the client establishes a connection and the server then acknowledges that the connection has happened so during a conversation you always try to get an acknowledgement from the other person that did you understand what i just said or you know am i making sense to you or is this too complicated so on and so forth right so you look for other signals like a a head nod a confused expression wide eyes or just like just a verbal confirmation that hey you know am i making sense like like right now like did this make sense to you guys Yeah, it like it immediately struck me that the uh, um like you're talking about sort of an active listening sort of behavior there that's, that's sort of verifying that that the the right things are being communicated but it also struck me that like meeting minutes are sort of a larger form of active listening for for the meeting and not just for an individual like set of exchanges and in between two people and and thinking about it that way is actually really helpful to me because you know it it's something I'm practicing to get better at and and lumping that sort of meeting summary into under that category makes it feel better to me as a thing that I can do. Yeah, meeting minutes are typically very treated with a little bit of a a given a very uh, for lack of a better word a very step you know, step treatment step step sisterly sort of treatment where it's just like oh you know this is what we talked about but i think you know just if you go through a bunch of like the past you know x meetings you'll start to see a trend sort of show up and overall it sort of represents the shared understanding of the entire group and how that understanding has evolved over a period of time yeah so we go kind of go back and read a lot of past uh, reviews just to see that oh you know how have we evolved as in our thought or in our language um another one on the the initial and maybe this is going to show up in some of your later examples Arvind so I apologize if uh that's the case but one thing i've tried to adopt or encourage to some success is a user manual like even though a lot of people are still figuring themselves out generally do have an awareness of here are some ticks i have here are some things that i respond well to when i hear this it makes me think that Mm-hmm. those sorts of translations also can go a long way so it's it's very similar to your suggestion just um 
instead of an interpretation of what just got said, some, uh, you know, a meta level of it. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, that's the, the beauty of interacting with other people is that nobody gives you that user manual. And with every person, it's an investigative exercise to figure out your version of that person's user manual. Because uh, what or the persona that you are to me, like what me is to Arpit, is very different from what me would be to her partner or to her colleague or to her you know, parent, for example. So everybody has very different user manuals of me or of a person, and they're very different personas. And for everybody that you meet, it's literally an investigation. It's a detective investigation to figure this person out. And that's why I absolutely love meeting new people. Because it presents a new challenge. It presents like, oh, you know, what do I know of this person? Or what side of this person do I know of or is are being presented to? And how can I deeper that understanding of this persona of this person? Yeah, that's fantastic. What, so you were, you were about to go into the rest of your sort of overall sort of schema for this. So I'd love to hear about the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, we want to hear, we want to hear. <laughs> Okay, so, so the, the other one is um, whenever you have a group of servers together, so you have something called a consensus algorithm uh, that is at play. Uh, so for example, you have the Raft consensus algorithm or the Paxos algorithm that is used. Uh, so uh, different uh, systems like Redis or Zookeeper or etc. cetera, uh, depending on the system, they choose a consensus algorithm. The one thing that is common across all these consensus algorithms is that there is a basically a leader and a follower or a main a node and you have other backup nodes or follower nodes, which basically translates to there is always a single source of truth in the system. So regardless of you know how many people that you are organizing or working with, there needs to be a single source of truth. That's why I am very anti-anarchy uh, as a governance model, uh, because I don't think that works. What works really, really well is a, a democracy where the backup nodes or the followers, they elect a leader. And when the leader no longer exists, maybe at the end of their term or etc., the backup nodes or the follower nodes choose to elect another leader from amongst themselves. So one of the followers gets promoted to the post of a leader. And this happens in literally every single organization and every single you know, governance model, if you will. And the leader plays a very critical role because the leader is literally answerable to the external system about the happenings that are happening inside the cluster. So, you know, like if you try to persist data into a cluster of servers and one of the backup nodes does not perform well, or it, it's, let's say it's a rogue server or a rogue person, you don't hold the server or the follower node responsible. You actually hold the leader responsible. And you say that, oh, as a leader, you didn't do your job and ensure that the data got persisted correctly. So I'm going to replace you as a leader because you're no longer a good leader. And uh, that is true of teams as well, that regardless of what everybody else is doing in the team, if you are leading a team, you are responsible for their outcome you need to take responsibility for their output and their outcome and act like that. And you are the interface for the team to the external world because the external world will only talk to you. They're not going to talk to a hundred other people that stand you know, beside you. They will only talk to you. 
So yeah, so that's the other sort of consensus algorithms and uh, how we elect a new leader. And that's why democracy rocks, right? Like the, like the all most successful nations have democracy because it's literally the best consensus algorithm that we've come up with. The third one is the concept of uh, independent failures. In a distributed system, when you have multiple services doing different parts of uh, the workflow, so for example, if I try to initiate a refund flow, now a refund flow needs to go to the order system, cancel the order, go to my payment system, initiate uh, a payment refund, and then maybe send uh, talk to the notification system and you know notify the user that the uh, refund is complete. Right. So there are three different subsystems that are at play in order for a refund to actually successfully happen. And this is where the concept of independent failures in a distributed system crop up, wherein an order system will actually be focused on accomplishing its job and it relies on the notification system to have done its job. So it's not like if the notification system fails, we are going to not cancel the order. The order is canceled. So so there is this shared sense of trust that a, a distributed system must take between its services so that each server does its job properly and independently without necessarily having to uh, rely on another server. And this is true of, uh, of people as well. And this is what I tell a lot of folks uh, within the team. The top priority is to get your job done first without worrying about what somebody else is doing. So once you've got your job in done, you've delivered what you needed to deliver, then focus on what everybody else is doing. Like don't try to unnecessarily distract yourself and focus on, you know, or what is X doing or what is Y doing unless you've completed what your deliverable is. Because there are other people in this shared trust model who are relying on you to do your job well. And this is, again, why you know high trust teams operate a lot more efficiently and are able to move a lot faster rather than a trustless system or a trustless team because of the shared sense of trust. And the corollary to this, uh, obviously, is uh, the independent failure is the concept of failing early. For example, if I expect somebody else to do their job and I'm dependent on their output for me to complete my job successfully, I better have a backup plan. Like what happens if the other person does not or the other team does not deliver on time? Like, Do we have a backup? And in the engineering world, people use mock data or mock APIs so that they can get their job done and while they wait for somebody else or some other team to deliver. Similarly, for, for, for teams, or human teams as well, is invariably most software projects, I think like a ridiculously large number of software projects are delayed. So which means that there are some teams which are you know almost always behind schedule. And the way to kind of move forward is to always have or formulate like a backup plan for yourself, for your team, so that even if the other team does not deliver on time, you are still able to move forward and still have your team's output or your personal output ready and deliverable so that you can then quickly integrate with the other team once they've given or they've delivered their output. So you shouldn't be beholden to them and say that, oh, you know, team X didn't deliver, so therefore I'm stuck. That's not an excuse. And that's how, again, large teams work well with each other. Uh, By the way, like as an interesting A-side, little bit tangential is uh, something that I learned from airplane engines or seeing how airplane engines are maintained. Uh, it's a different engineering discipline. So the beauty of an airplane engine, uh, if you ever kind of look at it, is uh, they are geared for quick maintenance. 
So when a flight lands, because uh, there's a dollar cost attached to how long the aircraft is parked in the bay, and the maintenance needs to happen like really, really quickly, every part that can potentially fail is literally within one arm's length inside the engine of a human. So they can literally put their arm in, reach for a part, take it out and replace it for maintenance. And the deep maintenance only happens every once in a while. And and my learning from this was for teams is that every part or everything that can potentially fail in the entire ecosystem should literally be within one arm's length of us as a team being able to change it or fix it. So instead of having like deep processes and, you know, deep like overarching fixes, as a team, always try to focus on, uh, you know, it's called inversion of control or dependency injection is sort of inverting that control and saying that, oh, you know, if there's something that's changing a lot, how do we ensure that we can actually change something like really, really quickly and adapt to the situation versus having to necessarily fall back to, you know, large overarching, you know, refact code refactors or large overarching processes that need to be, you know, hauled over versus, hey, you know, what's the quick thing that we can do? Uh, what's the smallest unit of work that we can do? in order to actually improve our entire system or our process as a team. So that was my takeaway from uh, literally sitting in a Lufthansa flight and seeing the maintenance happen outside. So it sounds to me like microservices are a part of that because you've got sort of smaller pieces of code that you don't have to you know go 15 class layers deep in to find where the thing is going wrong. You have the small encapsulated service that you know it's, it's easy to get to in, metaphorically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, if you look at uh, frameworks like Spring, uh, or I think React also, I think does some parts of this, uh, is the whole dependency injection and inversion of control, where it like surfaces, like even if there is a class that is like 15 layers deep, they actually allow you to expose it like at the top level. So you can just swap out your class at the top, uh, which again sort of maps to what you're saying in the microservices also that, you know, you can have like a cluster of like lots of microservices talking, you know, in a mesh network to each other a lot, but you're literally like, you know, one git push away from changing or improving something in one microservice or one workflow. Do you have anything that, like in the same toolbox that that helps manage like, you know, once you have you know, a large collection of microservices with their complex interactions, then you, you get that sort of next order complexity arises out of the, the system with its emergent behavior and whatnot. Like, do you have anything that helps you or the team deal with that layer of complexity? Sort of ish, yes. So I think uh, this is something that was actually popularized by Spotify, the Spotify squads, uh, which is essentially... Uh, so a squad, uh, or an, as an AppSmith, we call them pods, is a self-contained unit of, uh, you know, front-end engineers, mobile engineers, back-end engineers, product managers, designers, and QA, you know, put together so that they are able to accomplish a unit of work or, you know, they're able to take a feature from idea to production largely on their own without necessarily having to talk to other people. So if you have a lot of microservices or a lot of different services that are talking to each other in sort of a uh, a complex mesh network, one of the ways, you know, like basically follow Conway's law and sort of divide the entire team or your group of people as well to be responsible for a smaller set of uh, microservices. Sorry, uh, you're familiar with Conway's law, right? 
I was gonna say I I know a lot of people have done Conway's Game of Life and and that, but in case there are people who didn't, I was gonna ask if you'd be willing yeah. to go into it more. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so Conway's law uh, is actually very very interesting. So what Conway's law sort of states is that if you want to find out about the organization hierarchy or the organization structure of a company, you actually don't need to talk to the people. You actually go look at the code that they've written or produced. Uh, because the code is a representation of the organization structure. So if you see uh, a code base that has a lot of microservices with a lot of interfaces between them, then you can be rest assured that the entire, like this company or this organization is organized into a set of smaller teams that are communicating with each other through a shared you know, interface or through a shared understanding again. On the other hand, if you see a very monolithic code base with a lot with, you know, classes randomly talking to each other or like uh, randomly like imported or pulled into uh, each other, then you can be rest assured that this is a much more fluid organization. It's it's a more cohesive, like large block where people are just talking to each other a lot more. And a very good uh, example of this is uh, Jeff Bezos uh, back in the day. You know, this is early, early days of AWS. There's this famous memo of his wherein he went in and he's literally told everybody in AWS or Amazon with the two large pizza rule. And he said, no team is going to be larger than what two large pizzas can feed, which essentially limited it to anywhere between 10 to 20 people, depending on their appetite, right? So this ended up with AWS, where now every service in AWS, whether it's EC2, IAM, S3, etc., they are actually smaller teams that communicate with each other only via the API. And he said that, oh, don't you dare talk to this other team without an API. So eventually the the organization sort of reformed itself in order to meet that code structure that Jeff Bezos wanted. So Jeff Bezos didn't say, oh, I'm going to change the organization structure. He basically wanted the code or the services in such a manner. And he basically sort of you know, you, you move one lever and the other one will automatically move. So if you want to make a code change, change your teams or you change your teams and you'll change the code, whichever you think is the lesser of the evil or the easier thing to do and just do that because the other one will automatically happen. Uh, so that's the Conway's law. So to your point about the microservices is, again, sort of organize the people and the services will automatically happen. Yeah, where one team or handles like two or three services and yeah, just get those two, three services running with their uptime with whatever, five, nine, six, nine, whatever you want. I have to admit, Arpit, when I read some of this description, mm-hmm. I have this very visceral reaction to people trying to treat humans like systems mm-hmm. and vice versa. And like, there's certainly things to be learned and applied across, but this is the best, most like, humane human application of these things that I have ever heard and I am very excited about it especially for how you opened up in saying your opener I should say it more clearly was about how people are complex and it's hard and it's more of a complexity than figuring out code and for many reasons and layers and so seeing like a a self-learning algorithm application of, of how to deal with human systems love it yeah no, no absolutely and and most of these things are cross-disciplinary in nature and this basically stems from the idea that you know the history of software is the history of teams 
there is no good or great software that is ever built by you know a single person it's always built by teams of people so it's important the the code of the server is just the tool and you know you'll never hear uh, i don't know like da vinci ever praise his paintbrush for mona lisa right the paintbrush is just a tool right and and that's why i think you know focusing on the team and you know how teams collaborate or how people collaborate with each other is how we will get to better and better software to better whether it's abstraction level layers or you know etc better team organization or better people organization is how we are going to get to better software uh, but that in no way means that we can't sort of learn from our engineering disciplines or what other people have done whether it's the aircraft industry or uh, what f1 is doing to make their cars faster or what surgeons are doing to make uh, surgery safer and apply them and their processes and principles to actually running our own software teams or tech teams itself i have thought often about how the the energy with which we build things it does show up not only structurally but just where it finds itself you know mm-hmm. directionally so yeah to put that into practice is pretty cool you're reminding me also of Jess Kerr's RubyConf keynote i think it's 2019 mm-hmm. it's a uh, collective problem solving and she's come up with this term uh somathicist okay. and I think that you would really love her work and anybody enjoying hearing about innovation and team dynamics and and how to apply our own discipline to the human aspects back so that there really is um, two-way communication. We really do have an API with what we're building to ourselves. Well, nice. Uh, that, that sounds like a very interesting... Uh, yeah, I haven't heard this... Uh... Uh, her keynote yet, but I'm definitely going to give it a watch uh, after the show. Uh, so thank you so much for the pointer. The last thing that I wanted to uh, uh, mention as well was uh, when we look at, again, uh, you know, distributed systems and clusters of servers, reliability and uptime is almost always given a higher preference to simply speed or like speed of response or speed of, uh, you know, like your, your SLA on uh, how quickly did the service respond to my HTTP request or TCP request. And that correlates, again, like very, very highly with, uh, you know, with teams and people as well, is that regardless of how good a, a coder you are or good an artist you are or etc., if uh, you are unreliable or your uptime, you know, so to speak, is not really there, it's very hard, again, to establish that human trust, right? There was this uh, this book I was reading about how uh, SEAL teams operate because the Navy SEALs are literally the highest functioning team that, you know, that exists out there and they operate in like some very, very adverse conditions. So, and there was this book about how do SEALs organize themselves and how do they operate? And the way the kind of uh, SEAL team members sort of select like who's going to be on their team is where they sort of basically draw a quadrant you know, if you have performance on one axis and trust on the other axis, like how much do I trust this person in the middle of a firefight versus performance is, you know, how good of a sharpshooter are you or something like that, right? They will prefer somebody who is of mediocre performance but higher trust over somebody who is of higher performance and mediocre trust or low trust, right? Because at the end of the day, when you're in an adverse situation or when things go, you know, south, what you really want next to you is not the best sharpshooter, but what you want is somebody you can actually trust 
you know and software teams are a far cry from uh, what the navy seals do uh, we have very very cushy jobs and uh, thank god for it <laughs> but you know you don't want to go into you know a meeting with a you know with a customer or you know go to uh, you know you know you're presenting to your ceo and the all hands and you know you have your partner who kind of throws you under the bus when something doesn't work or you know there's a demo effect and things don't work and you don't want to be thrown under the bus in front of everybody right so what you'd rather do is work with somebody who has who's more reliable who has a more you know greater uptime again uh, quote and quote for a person it's uh, it's you know how quickly are they responding to you uh, do they communicate back that hey you know i'm getting delayed on x can we push this meeting forward like even something as small as hey i'm running late by you know 5 minutes on this meeting uh, can we push the meeting by 5 minutes or 10 minutes that's a very very small signal of reliability and trust and those are invariably the people like you know correlation or causation uh, who will actually end up getting much better you know performance reviews they are the ones who will actually get promoted because again in a consensus algorithm they are the ones who will get elected to be the next leader because they are the people that you know the team trusts and so what do you want to do in any team is or uh, if you are an engineer in a team you know or a new engineer in a team uh, the first thing to do is not show off how good a coder you are or how good you know your code is but what you want to actually do when you're a new person in a group is establish trust like can you trust me as a human and uh, we have a lizard brain like right from neanderthals to homo sapiens to whatever is that we'd much rather be with people that we trust more than anything else in this world so reliability and uptime uh, and how do you be the reliable the person that oh i I've, i've told arpit to do x we know that x will be delivered so they can then move on and do live their lives so so you want to be that person uh, in the team yes everyone who's about to be or is new to a team will hear you say that one again arpit what would you do what would you want build trust establish trust forget everything else definitely this seems like a great time to move on to reflections who'd like to start us off i can go first uh i've got two things that are takeaways one is the the realization i had earlier about how meeting minutes and clear communication after some sort of group conversation is a form of active listening and 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 ensuring that communication has happened the way you thought it did which is great in in increasing the fidelity of the understanding throughout the team. I love that. Um and then the other one was you know I've been familiar with Conway's law for a long time. Of course it's been around for since the 70s I think at least maybe even the 60s. And but the the way you phrased it where you were saying that you can start with the structure of the code and have that influence the teams or you could start with the teams and have that influence the structure of the code. And just that idea that you could say okay, well, I kind of think the architecture is going to end up looking like this. that means i'm going to build these teams that do these things and then that will just naturally flow out of the fact that the teams are structured that way uh is is such a fascinating like flip to the normal way of thinking about how uh, you know software is going to get built in 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 a large in a multi-team environment uh so that, that's definitely going to stick with me for a while awesome john you stole mine <laughs> <laughs> Those are definitely on my list. But but so many of them. I'm definitely going to re-listen to this and Arpit, I want you to write a book or like, I don't know, make a movie. This is great. I love it. Uh so yeah, 
I think the only thing I could add to what you were saying, John, is I loved thinking about trust in terms of reliability and uptime. That was, <laughs> yeah. yeah, really well done. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I really, really want to write a book uh, at some point. That's on my bucket list uh, to kind of do a short ebook someday. Like, I hope I can do that. But yeah, and uh, yeah, so for me, the takeaway is uh, is literally this uh, Rubicon talk that you uh, kind of shared, because uh, to be honest, I haven't, I haven't heard a lot about people speaking about, you know, the, the, the confluence between uh, engineering disciplines and team management principles and, you know, and human disciplines itself. Uh, so I think, you know, that's that's definitely like a, a takeaway for me uh, is to kind of uh, listen to what she said and learn from. Uh, what she's talking about in the keynote. And I've been um, saving up a reading list too. So I, I will write you after this and we can compare compare some notes. Also, you're, when you write the book, Arbit, it, you need to sign it as Tenacious A. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. At that point, I'll probably tattoo it. <laughs> Not just sign it. <laughs> and then you'll have to come back on the show to talk about it again. Yes, yes. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, this has been uh, a really, really fun, uh, very free-flowing, uh, very casual conversation. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, you know, to all of you for for doing that and for having me on the show. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, I, I just want to say my reflection was just the in the beginning um, when you described your superpower being tenacity. I just I haven't thought of that word in such a long time. And it's such a great word. So determination, tenacity. I love the word. So that that was a great takeaway for me. But again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was wonderful to have you. And we will see everyone next week. 